All right, so let's do a little bit of review as we typically do, uh, going back and seeing where we were in Mark prior to where we're going to be. We're going to be uh, in chapter 8 today, verses 22 through 30. But first, um, let's do a little bit of review of chapter 7 and beginning in chapter 8. Um, somebody remind me why it was necessary for Jesus to come to the Jew first before he came to the Gentile. What promises? Um, promises that that all together. Yep, sorry, prophecies. Yes, prophecies and promises. They were for for Israel, right? Uh, going all the way back to Genesis 12 and the promise that God made with Abraham. And even within that promise that God made to Abraham, He said, "I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you shall be." Uh, blessing, and then he elaborates upon that covenant, and he goes forward to to cut other covenants with Israel, and uh, recognizes them as his set apart people, as a people that he he loves and people that he chose. But then he also says to Abraham in that same passage in Genesis twelve that in you all the the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So. It is a, a promise, as you say, first to the Jew, and then it expands out from there. Uh, the Gentiles are included also. One of my favorite passages is in Isaiah uh, 49, which says uh, it is too small a thing for God just to, to save Israel. Uh, verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's a beautiful truth for those of us who are not Israel. All right. And so this truth that the gospel is, in fact, for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, like Paul says in Romans 1.16, um, how have we seen this truth exemplified in recent chapters in Mark, chapters Seven and eight. Feeding the five thousand, feeding the four thousand. Yeah, good. Yeah, we looked at how the the feeding of the five thousand that was in uh, the Jewish region, and then he went down to the Decapolis where he fed the the four thousand. We looked at that last week in verses one through ten of chapter eight, and so he first spent time with the Jewish people in. Galilee, and then performed a very similar miracle in the very Jewish or Gentile region uh, of the Decapolis. What else have we seen recently? The Canaanite woman. Yeah, good. The the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman, right? She was um, very uh, very starkly identified as somebody who is not. Jewish, and Jesus, he even referred to her as a dog, and she was um, very understanding, and she said, well, I, I just want the crumbs of the Savior. Very humble, very faithful attitude that we see from her. And then uh, one more example, in between the, the Syrophoenician woman in 
chapter 7 and the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8. Towards the end of chapter 7, what do we see take place? The deaf man? Yeah, the, the deaf man, the deaf and dumb man who was uh, also a Gentile. This took place also in the region of the Decapolis, these 10 Gentile cities. And this man was shown favor with God. He was shown grace, uh, despite the fact that he is outside of the fold of the, the Jewish people. We're, we're starting to see more and more of this, even going all the way back into uh, chapter 4, when we read about the parables. And Jesus was pretty, um, he was pretty clear about his purpose for the parables, that it was so that some would see and that others would not see. And he's uh, starting to speak in more veiled language to the, the Jewish people. Why did Jesus not give the Pharisees the sign that they asked for in verse 11 of chapter 8 that we looked at last week? Remember, the Pharisees came to him and they said, Jesus, we, we just want a sign. Give us a sign and we'll believe. Why didn't he give them that sign? For a couple of reasons, so don't feel too on the spot. I like to bring sign. Like, like, he was frustrated with them. You know, they always demanded a sign, and he, he knew yeah. what they were doing. I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for. That's a great answer. Yeah, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows that they're they're playing games, right? They're coming to test him, and uh, he's just exasperated. Just size. Really, guys? This again? You a sign? Yeah, good. What were you going to say, Joseph? Yes. And there was no shortage of signs, right? He had been doing uh, these miraculous works and casting out demons and uh, raising people from the dead. He's doing this left and right. And they're coming to him and they're saying, just, just give us a sign, right? And he tells them right there in the, the text, it's an evil and adulterous generation who seeks after a sign. You, you say, oh, I just need a sign. Uh, but really, you have... The, the law of God, right? Somebody last week referenced, uh, I think it was Steve George, referenced Luke 16 uh, with Lazarus and the rich man coming back from the grave. And he said, you know what? You, even if somebody comes back from the grave, you're not going to listen. But you have Abraham, and that's all you need. That is sufficient. Uh, and then we looked last week about in Matthew and Luke and how they make an exception. Um, not only does Jesus say, well, I'm, I'm not really going to give you a sign. He says, well, I will give you one sign, the sign of Jonah, right? Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, I'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So he's saying, my resurrection is going to be the sign. My death is not going to be eternal. That's not the, the final chapter, but I'm coming back. That's going to be the sign. You want a sign, I'm, I'm going to raise from the dead. <laughs> and then uh, we talked about the fact that we're not really lacking any information, right? Even if we had a sign, that's not going to change our, our wicked hearts. The Pharisees didn't just need a sign. Uh, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. We have the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed, and that is sufficient. Do you have something, Sam? Well, it's just interesting to note that if, even though the Pharisees had dozens and dozens and dozens of piles of signs, they, they would 
they wouldn't believe even under that case. Um, I think it's in the book of Daniel where the, the 70 weeks are all laid out, and if you do yeah. the math, Jesus' triumphant entry ends up being right when, you know, that the, the book of Daniel said it was going to be. And so the Pharisees would have known exactly who Jesus was. Perfect. There would, would have been no question about it, but because they were hard of heart in that particular instance, just like Pharaoh, when he saw miracles, was hard of heart. You know, they, it didn't matter. It didn't matter how many signs they had. Yeah, good. Yeah, so going back to Daniel 9, looking at the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 and uh, calculating that out, Jesus is very blunt all throughout the, the Gospels, especially with the religious leaders. Uh, you guys, you should know, right? There's no excuse for you guys not to know. Um, I think on Wednesday we were talking about John 3 and how Jesus told Nicodemus, you are the, the spiritual leader and you need to, you need to have a, a new heart, right? Referencing back to Ezekiel 36 and 37 that we looked at on Wednesday, that you need to be born of the spirit and of water, that um, there, there's something here that's not clicking, it's not jiving. Yeah, Jim. When they were asking for signs, they were basically saying, prove it. But it didn't matter how much proof they had, they weren't going to believe it. Yep. Yeah, it's a position of arrogance, right? To stand back and to like tell to God, tell you need to prove to me who you are. Uh, that's a, a scary position to take, right? We should be more like the Syrophoenician, take this position God, of humility. Why didn't you just show me? You know, who am I? <laughs> yeah, good. On the other hand, though, Said it's they have Moses, they have Abraham, and today is the same way for all these fake religions, fake leaders. The only the only reason at all that we know about Jesus at all is because of the Bible. If it wasn't for the Bible, it would just have been in the, in, in the history, and nobody would be looking for it. Amen. Yeah, we have even more light today, yes. uh, more responsibility, and less of a reason to uh, to say that God hasn't told us. Uh, Logan, did you have something? Well, I was just thinking of the scripture when Satan took Jesus up to the mountain. Yeah. He was asking for a sign to show me your God very so often, Pentecost temple or whatever. Yep. Very satanic thing to seek a sign. Good. All right. Uh, one more question for review. Uh, how should we understand the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the sad or leaven of Herod rather? Reference back in eight fifteen. What was Jesus referring to? Remember, he didn't really get into it. He didn't break it down so much uh, because the disciples, they just, they weren't grasping it. They weren't understanding. But what, what was he beginning to get at? What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? Would it be like their teachings or their like magic traditions? Yeah, good, perfect. Yeah, so perfect. His, their hypocrisy and their teachings, you, you got it. Uh, Matthew and Luke, again, they both give us a little bit in, of insight. They actually tell us uh, what the, the leaven is. Matthew says that the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees, and Luke says that it's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And as we talked about before with Herod, Herod was 
uh, flirting with the truth. He was okay listening to the truth, but he never really submitted to the truth. He never surrendered to, uh, to God. He was just kind of on the fringe. He was on the edge. And Jesus was warning the disciples, don't do that. You guys need to watch out for that. But remember, again, the disciples, they didn't really understand Jesus' reference to the leaven. They thought that he was talking about bread. Uh, and uh, they, they just they didn't get it. They weren't on that same level with Jesus, what he was trying to communicate with them or to them. And rather than explain himself, uh, Jesus kind of semi-rebukes the disciples and points out their shortcomings and their inability to see, their spiritual blindness uh, several times. Let's look in uh, chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Uh, several different questions that Jesus asks here, just uh, one after another. He starts off and he says, Do you not yet see or understand? Right after that. Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? So question after question, kind of, again, rebuking them, saying, you guys should know these things. You guys uh, should be aware of these things. And uh, these aren't the, the first times that these disciples are, are hearing these truths. These, this isn't the first time that um, this kind of rebuke has been given to the disciples. So uh, Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so in Jesus asking them, do you not see or understand? He's essentially pointing out, you guys, you're still not getting it. You don't understand that I am the Holy One. You, you have to have understanding uh, to comprehend who the Holy One is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And uh, when he asked if they have a, a hardened heart, again, this harkens back to Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 11, uh, asking the, or communicating to the people their need for a soft heart. Ezekiel 11:19 says, God says, and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And Jesus is communicating that to his disciples, saying, are your hearts hardened? You guys need softened hearts. You guys still have this, this heart of stone, and it's insufficient. That's why you guys can't understand what I'm talking about. That's why you guys think I'm talking about bread, because you guys still have hard hearts. You don't understand. You, you're blind. You can't see. Uh, when he talks about having eyes and not being able to see. Uh, it's a reference back to Isaiah 6, the great vision of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 6, starting in verse 9, it says, he said, uh, this is God giving uh, his commission to Isaiah after God says, who's going to go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And verse 9 says, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. This is a, a judgment that God is proclaiming on Israel, and he's sending Isaiah out to, to speak these things to them, that they might still be 
blind, that they might still be deaf. Verse 11, uh, then Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, a remnant, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So again, this is a, a judgment proclamation to, to go out and to preach. And uh, Jesus here is associating his disciples with this. You guys are still blind. You guys still can't see. Uh, same kind of deal going on in Jeremiah 5.21. It says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Are you guys starting to get the picture that Jesus is calling his disciples uh, a cursed generation, essentially? These blind people who uh, are under this this curse. They, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand because they haven't had their hearts changed. They haven't had their eyes opened up. This isn't the, the first time that Jesus has revealed himself to them, right? All this time, Jesus has been showing them who he is and what he is there to do. Um, later on in verses 19 and 20, he, he reminds them, he says, you remember that, that bread that I broke? You guys are so concerned about bread. Remember how many baskets we had left over from the 5,000? How many baskets left over from the 4,000? I gave you all this stuff, and you guys forget. You guys, it's not clicking. Uh, Mark 6.52 says, For they had not gained, this is right after the, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the water, Jesus walking on the water. It says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. They still, after seeing Jesus multiply bread for 25,000 people walking on water, they're still not getting it, but they can't get it because they have hard hearts. And so uh, Jesus wraps up this kind of rebuke uh, in verse 21 by this just chilling phrase, do you not yet understand? That kind of summarizes everything that Jesus is saying. You guys you don't yet understand. You still don't get it. And after Mark 21, Mark just kind of lets this phrase hang for a little while. Uh, he doesn't address it. He doesn't give uh, an answer or a response from the disciples. He just jumps right into the following account. And it's an account that uh, can be easily misunderstood if we isolate it from this incident. Uh, from the context of the, the disciples' spiritual blindness. These several questions that Jesus asks leading up to our, our text today are key for us to understand our passage. So let's keep that in mind as we uh, look at our passage. Will somebody read for us verses 21 through 26 of Mark chapter 8? 8, 21 through 26. All right, Sam. And he said to them, not yet understand. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? 
And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of the Caesarea Philippi. All right, that's good. Thank you. All right, so this is one of those other unique uh, miracles to the Gospel of Mark, along with the, the healing of the, uh, the mute man at the end of chapter 7. This one is only found in Mark, not in Matthew, Luke, or John. And what else is unique about this account, aside from it being the, the only one that's found in Mark? What is... Uh, what sets this miracle apart from the rest of Jesus' miracles? That it took two times. Yeah, it took two times. What is that about, right? Uh-huh. It is the, the only two-phase miracle that Jesus ever performed. Uh, do you guys, does anybody remember uh, Numbers 23 and 19? It's a fairly, fairly popular verse. God is not a man that he should lie. Yeah, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. What's the latter part of the verse say? Do you remember that? Yeah, the, the first part is, is popular. The latter part is equally important. It says that, uh, has he said and will he not do it? Has he commanded and will, it not, will he not make it good? Um, that verse is talking about God, right? Has God said, and will God not do it? Has God spoken, and will God not make it good? Is Jesus God? Yes. yes. All right. We, this half of the room believes that Jesus is God, and that's good. <laughs> All right, you guys, is Jesus God? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So, since Jesus is God, um, this, this is a difficult passage for us, right? That he... he healed this man, but kind of, right? It took two times, as Christina said. It wasn't just all at once. And some people will actually use this passage uh, to suggest that Jesus isn't God. They'll say, well, you know, that's not something that, that happens to God, to the God of the universe, that he has to take two times to, to heal somebody. And then others will point out the... Um, they'll point to this as an example of healing um, that isn't uh, quite good enough. Healings that, that don't work. And they'll use it to justify their own attempts at healing. They'll say, well look, even Jesus, it took him two times to make this man be able to see that one time. Remember that? That, that was Jesus. So it's okay if I try to heal somebody and it doesn't quite take. Uh, that's, that's normative. We should expect that because, again, it, it happened to Jesus. So we can have this standard where we have the we could have the standard lowered for miracles. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, Modern faith healers sometimes allege that this verse supports the notion of incomplete healings, but it clearly does not. None of the Lord's healings ever resulted in partial, imperfect, or gradual restoration, nor was there ever a period of rehabilitation necessary. This miracle was no exception. In a matter of moments, the blind man went from dehabilitation from debilitating blindness to perfect vision. Such is obviously a far cry from the fraudulent and 
failure that characterizes self-proclaimed healers today. And so, um, Jesus had this, again, it's a, a unique experience, this only two-phase miracle that Jesus performed. But if Jesus were truly surprised by the initial results, then we would indeed have a problem, right? It would either lend us to believe that uh, perhaps Jesus isn't God, or that perhaps this is how miracles work, that they can come in these kind of two or three stage uh, type of experiences. But surprise and confusion and failed attempts and partial healings, they aren't traits that are conducive with the, the acts of the God of the universe, are they? God isn't surprised by stuff. He doesn't make attempts at stuff that, that fail. That's not how God operates. But there's also something else that's unique in this passage. Um, perhaps you, you caught it. What do you see in this passage that tells us that Jesus isn't surprised by these results? That he didn't intend to heal this man completely? He asked him. Yeah. yeah. He asks him this question, right? He says, do you see anything? When else does Jesus have to ask if his miracles actually take effect, right? He, that, that doesn't happen. This is unique. Jesus asks this uncharacteristic question to verify the effectiveness of the man's healings. Think back to uh, chapter 1 in Mark and how Jesus healed the leper. And he told him, you just be quiet. You don't go off sharing this with anybody. You go to a priest and you have them verify it. He didn't say, you go to the priest and you have to verify. You come back and tell me if it actually worked, right? Jesus wasn't looking for that verification for himself. Or in the next chapter, when Jesus healed the, the paralytic man that was lowered down, you remember that? Uh, he forgave his sins first. He says, what's easier, to, to forgive his sins or to tell him, get up and walk? Do you think Jesus was sitting there crossing his fingers when he said, yeah, go ahead and get up and walk, hoping that it would work, that he didn't make a fool of himself in front of all the, the scribes and the Pharisees? He knew when he told him, get up and walk, that he was going to get up and walk, right? He wasn't hoping, he wasn't guessing, and he wasn't surprised by the fact that it, it actually took place. He didn't have to ask him afterwards, how's the leg? Are, are you able to get around all right? But he does that with this man here. He asks him, are you able to, to see, right? Do you see anything? And uh, the, the man's answer that, that he can see, but not very... Clearly, he sees uh, men walking around like trees. Um, it's similar to the, the spiritual sight of the disciples, that they have some spiritual sight, but they don't have full vision. Uh, this man's vision was blurry. It was out of focus. It was like when I, I take off my glasses, you guys, just a bunch of blobs, right? Uh, some blobs are, are better looking than other blobs, but just a bunch of blobs. And I'm sure if I were to take my glasses and hand them to you and you'd put them on and be the same kind of effect for you guys, you'd see not very clearly. Well, this man's ailment and healing is illustrative of the disciples' spiritual condition. It illustrates their, their spiritual condition, how they are uh, not able to, to fully see, how they are uh, still remaining, uh, the disciples still remain blind. 
all these questions that we just looked at before. Do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you still have hardened hearts? Do you, again, not see? You don't hear? You do not understand? These disciples are spending more and more time with Jesus, and they're beginning to, to understand. And the following verses will show us that uh, God is beginning to, to open up their their eyes. He's beginning to soften their hearts and to give them understanding. But um, we can't leave this uh, account thinking that Jesus somehow failed in his attempt to to heal the man without it having some sort of uh, purpose, that he had a reason for doing that. And I think the reason was to demonstrate the spiritual blindness of the disciples. Do you have something, Jim? Well, the second time he says he put his eyes on and made him look up. Yeah, it's a, a different word for, for look. So it's a, a focused, direct gaze where he's able to actually see. Trying to emphasize that it's from God. Yeah, that's a good point. That he I mean, made him look I don't up. Know what to, to me, that's all it means. Is what version of do you have? New King James. Yeah, Jerry. Well, the other thing might be just to test the guy's faith because he had been discouraged at first sight. Mm-hmm. Any doubt about Jesus being able to do that? Yes. Yeah. We need to. Option of man there to have been to have questioned there if it didn't work the first time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That faith is required, right? And Jesus asked him, "Are are you seeing?" And, and kind of, yeah, a little bit, but but not fully. And he. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps Mark just left that out. <laughs> Can't you do any better? <laughs> All right, well, not to leave the, the story incomplete, Mark does report that Jesus goes back and, and finishes the miracle. He gives the man his complete sight. And then as he's done before, he sends him home without permitting him to go on and to share what's happened with him. And before we, we fully move on from this section, uh, how do we see Jesus presented here as a, a suffering servant? How do we see him displaying his caring compassion for this man. It was a multi-step process. I mean, he took him by the hand and yep. him out of the village. Yeah, he took him by the hand. That's very compassionate, very physical, showing care and concern, right? And he took him out of the village. He's getting him away from the people, similar to how he did with the the deaf man back at the end of chapter 7 or the, the Syrophoenician woman not the Syrophoenician woman the um, Jairus's daughter right in chapter 5 he went up into the, the room with just the inner circle and the parents and said everybody else you stay out this is a, a private matter and this here was a, a private uh, healing and it was for this man and the disciples and Jesus t- 
took him out of the town. We see uh, lots of tender compassion there. There are uh, a couple of reasons. Oh, go ahead, Andy. Well, um, the disciples uh, at one point asked, was it, um, I think it was in John 9 where he healed the blind man. Yeah. He said, was it because of this man's sin or his parents' sins? Yep. So there was a concept then, as in all human hearts even today, well, a person is getting cursed by God, basically. Yeah. So Jesus consistently stepped outside of that man looks on the outside and is looking at the heart and when, you know, he would touch the lepers, he would be ceremonially unclean. Yeah. Um, you know, th- this man, all, all of his healings, they were, it was tenderness for the people that were at the dreads of society, they were the bottom. You know, these people couldn't work, they couldn't make any money. Yep. They had to be taken care of by family, if they were lucky, or they would just be out on the street begging. Yeah, I think about how meaningful it would be for them mm-hmm. to have somebody take time to actually focus on them and, and show them this care and concern. And not just anybody, this is Jesus, this is the man that all these other crowds of people are, are trying to get around. He wants to take time for me to to take me aside and to, to make me well. Now we definitely see the the servant heartedness of Jesus in this passage. Alright, so there are a couple of reasons perhaps why Jesus tells this man just, just go back home, don't even go to the village. Uh, we've talked before about how Jesus' time had not yet come and how he doesn't need any more people chasing after him, trying to kill him, trying to take him and and make him king. So perhaps that's part of it. But perhaps there's also an an aspect of of judgment that's going on here. That in this silence, we can understand that Jesus is proclaiming judgment on this city. Uh, On Bethsaida is where they're they're at. It says in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida. So perhaps Jesus is saying, you know what? we're, we're done with Bethsaida. You're not even going to go back. You're not going to declare to them. You're just going to go to your house because I'm, I'm done. They've had enough judgment. And as we just referenced, we have even more light and more exposure than they did back then. And because of that, we're going to have more responsibility. The more exposure to light we have, the greater judgment we're going to have in, in the day of judgment. And so in a way, we can see Jesus' mercy and compassion here by saying, don't go give them more light. Don't go add to the judgment that they're going to receive in the end times. Just go back to your house. Bethsaida is a city that was very familiar to Jesus, very familiar to his works. Uh, We have three miracles that are recorded for us in the Gospels that he did there. Uh, This here, this healing of the man who was blind. Uh, We have a couple chapters ago, the feeding of the 5,000. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, that that took place in Bethsaida. And then shortly after that, the, the Jesus walking on the water in Mark 6, 45, that was also in Bethsaida. And so we have Jesus doing all kinds of miraculous works there. Uh, it's also the, the hometown, Bethsaida is, the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. We learned from uh, John 1, 44 and 45. And so it's likely that there were even more miracles that took place in Bethsaida than what we have recorded for us. Uh, and in Luke 10, uh, Luke records Jesus 
saying in Luke 10, 13 and 14, talking to Bethsaida, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it will be for you. So it seems like Jesus was kind of fed up with Bethsaida a little bit. So perhaps that's why he sent this man off to his house. Or, as I said, perhaps it's just because his time had not yet come. All right, well, uh, in the, the following section, we see Peter's confession. But before we get to Peter's confession about who Jesus is, Peter's great confession, uh, let's go back a little bit and look at how Mark has been kind of outlining his, his gospel. Because from the very beginning, Mark has been highlighting uh, this discovery process of people understanding who Jesus is. Jesus revealing himself to people and what their perception of him is. So let's go all the way back to Mark 1. And from the very first verse, we see Mark kind of set us on this trajectory of explaining who Jesus is. It says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is who Mark is writing about. This is who he is presenting. And he's going to slowly unfold the fact that he is, in fact, the Son of God. But it's not always going to be received and understood by people. Jump forward to verse 24, Mark 1. This verse, speaking of a, the unclean spirit, uh, the unclean spirit says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this spirit, and we've seen throughout the other demons, other spirits, they have an understanding of who Jesus is. They know that he's the Holy One of God. But Jesus tells them, no, you, you need to shut up. You need to be quiet because that's not for everybody else to know. We're, we're still trying to uh, work on this discovery process. And we see in verse 27 that that's not the response of the people. They have a response, and it's uh, a favorable one, but it's not the same as the, the demon saying, you're the Holy One of God. 27 says they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So again, that's a, a favorable response. That's a good response, but that's not them uh, bowing the knee and submitting to Jesus as Lord. Jumping over to chapter 2, verse 6, says some of the Pharisees were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So even the Pharisees, they get, they get kind of close. and They realize only God can forgive sins. This man just forgave sins. But then they say, not he must be God, but he must be blaspheming. That's the response of the, the Pharisees. Uh, jumping forward to chapter 3, verse 11, says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. Verse 21, this is talking about his own people, his own family. This is how they understood it. It says, When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying that he has lost his senses. His family thought, He's nuts. We need to bring him home. We need to help him out. He needs help, not he's Lord, but he's a lunatic. Uh, jumping forward to the end of Mark 4, verse 41. The disciples, 
they became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Realizing something different about him, right? Who is this guy? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 5. After healing the demoniac, uh, the people of the city, they began to implore him to leave the region. So, mixed responses, but still not understanding who Jesus is. Uh, Jumping forward to chapter 6. Could I get somebody to read verses 14 through 16? What is the response there of, of King Herod? Mark 6, 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. All right, still not getting it, right? Assigning all these other uh, potential identities to Jesus, but not understanding what Mark said from the very beginning. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They're not quite there. Uh, Verse 52, same chapter. Uh, After seeing Jesus walk on water, said, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, but again, their hearts were hardened. Chapter 7, verse 6, he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, speaking to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, for it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And then, uh, where we've been most recently in chapter 8, verse 12, again, sighing deeply in his spirit. Just, (laughs) dude, really? You kidding me? Still this? He said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say, no generation will be given, or no sign will be given to this generation. So he had essentially written off the the Pharisees as being blind, right? You guys aren't getting a sign. You guys are blind. It's not happening for you. And then as we looked at all those questions in verse 17 and 18, talking about how the disciples, they're still not seeing it. They're still not getting it. Their hearts are still hardened. They're temporarily blinded. And then wrapping it up in verse 21, do you not yet understand? Uh, Jesus' identity is of central concern all throughout Mark. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Uh, This man that he presents from the very beginning as the Son of God. People are coming to a a discovery of who he is all throughout the the pages of John. Then we get down to uh, verse 27. And will somebody read this passage for us? 27 through 30. Chapter 8. Thanks, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and other, others one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell him no one about him. All right, thank you. So we see at the beginning, he asks them a question. Uh, going through this very wicked, evil city, Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do people say that I am? What's the, the general consensus? What is the, uh, what's the, the wisdom of man out there? What do they think about who I am? And they have, a, again, perhaps a, a fairly uh, positive 
response, some flattering responses. They say, oh, some people say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and some, of, some say perhaps you're one of the prophets. And so while recognizing Jesus as being set apart in, in some special way, most people didn't really know who he was. Again, these are kind of flattering responses, right? John the Baptist, uh, Jesus himself said, there's none like John the Baptist who's been born of women. He is, he's set apart, right? Uh, Elijah, man, what a guy. And one of the prophets. So they have a, a high view of Jesus. They are all touching on the truth, touching at the truth, kind of hinting at it. Uh, sort of like the, the man who could kind of see, but not fully see, right? They kind of got a, a little bit of a glimpse. There's something special about Jesus, but they didn't fully understand who he was. And then Jesus gets real personal. And the, the question that he asks in verse 29, who do you say that I am? This is the most vital question that uh, we were ever faced with, right? Any of us to ask and to answer this question, who is Jesus? This is the, the focal point of the gospel, that God is holy, that we are fallen. What are you going to do about it, right? What are we going to do with, with Jesus, this person of Jesus? And Jesus turns and he asks the disciples this very important question. I, I don't care who people say that I am. Yeah, maybe they think I'm Elijah. Maybe they think I'm John the Baptist. We all know they're wrong. I'm not Elijah, right? But who do you say that I am? And you got to love Peter. Peter always being the one to speak up, kind of representing the group. Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. That is, what else can you say? You are the Christ, right? Peter's answer is the only sufficient answer. Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What about John 8.24? Somebody look up John 8.24. That is a, a beautiful verse. I'm going to have you look it up rather than read it for you. This is, once again, the, the most important question ever faced before us. Um, I think it was A.W. Tozer who said the, the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. And Jesus is here asking these people in the flesh, what do you think about me? John eight twenty four. what does Jesus say about himself there? I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Amen. In the very same chapter that he says, before Abraham was, I am, that where he says that he is the, the light of the world, he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So unless we accept Jesus for who he is as the son of God, as the, the Messiah who is God in the flesh, then we too will die in our sins. And Matthew adds even greater insight into this whole experience, into Jesus asking Peter, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the, the answer that Jesus, that Peter gives and where that answer comes from. Uh, James, like you were referring to before, when Jesus said, when he was healing this man, that he touched the man, he made him look up. That was a, a work of Jesus. That was Jesus doing that to him. And we see here in, in Matthew 6, 15 through 17, Jesus said to him, to, to them rather, to the disciples, who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he adds to his answer there. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one, the son of God, which is not to be taken as anything less than God. Remember in John 5, John chapter 8, John chapter 10, when he called himself the son of God, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him because they realized that he was making himself equal with God. So Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. And then verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, it's not because you're, you're smarter than your neighbor. It's not because you're, you're wiser than the guy down the street. But God has revealed this truth to you, that I am the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and it's from this point that we start to see the disciples really starting to, to understand who Jesus is. We see their, their eyes begin to be opened. Uh, Peter's confession really marks a shift in Mark's writing. Uh, it's from this point on, Jesus is more focused on the cross and more focused on the, his subsequent resurrection. And Jesus now moves from his... Uh, he moves on from his public ministry in Galilee and focuses more on the training of the 12 disciples. And he is less covert with them. But he begins to speak more openly with his disciples about his, his coming death. Uh, we'll get into that next week. and We'll look at him referencing his, his coming death uh, very plainly with the disciples. Whereas before, he's been a little bit more uh, veiled, more parabolic so to speak. Remember the parables were so that some people would see and others would, would not see. So this marks a, a pretty stark transition, this great confession of Peter that he is the Christ. Any thoughts or questions on Peter's confession or the, the thoughts of the others that he was John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets? Can't be a, a new guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, you just have non-stop miracles as a this. And as I've been thinking history, before it was Elijah, Elisha, Moses, who performed miracles, so they thought was their only uh, reference yeah. Yeah, obviously the understanding of all of the Old Testament comments on the Messiah is just too big to handle yeah. the first blow, I guess. Yeah, kind of to. Dense. Yeah, to Sam's point, had they known their Old Testament a little bit better, perhaps they would have understood better. This has got to be the Messiah. Uh, Elijah, he's not going to cut it. John the Baptist, it, he had his head cut off. Uh, yes, I'll talk more about it next. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a stretch because that's, this is in no way the kind of guy they expected to be the Messiah. Yeah, they were looking for something different entirely. Yep. Glory from the get go. Yep. Amy? Um, 
The, John 8 that you pulled up, the verse before it, verse 23, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Yeah. We, are, we are made of dirt. And yeah. <laughs> to know that yep. we are from, we, he, he's, he's a completely different form Amen. than we are. He's from above. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Dirt made in the image of God, but still dirt nonetheless, right? <laughs> and he is uh, God on high, the transcendent, uh, unique being of the universe who took on a, a body of dirt uh, the, the, for our sake. The verse that says, where God says, you thought I was like you. Yeah. You know, we, we so too much want to think that we are like you. Yep. And in doing that, we not only elevate ourselves to his standard, but we have to diminish who God is and, and change the very nature and essence of God to make ourselves anything close to like him. Andy, do you have a thought? Yeah, I think, um, you know, especially uh, with the Sega Lily thing that we did yesterday, um, you know, God makes it so clear to our hearts as believers, he, you know, it, it has to be supernatural because our human minds try to excuse or give alternate explanations that we think, at least I do sometimes, that I can win someone Christ through logic and reason. It doesn't work that way. Yep. God is the one who shines his light in men's hearts. He's the one that redeems his people. Amen. And, you know, we, again, it's a elevating, de-elevating thing in our own minds. And I, I have to, it's hard, but I have to constantly remind myself that when I'm talking to someone who does not know the Lord, that they're walking in darkness. They're led astray by their own thoughts. They're led astray by this world. And it is only God and the Spirit that can redeem. Amen. But we should allow that to encourage us rather than discourage us. Yes. It's not based upon us and our ability to articulate the gospel. It's not based upon our ability to, to share truth with others. God is the one who has to work on people's hearts. He is the one who has to take that heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. Um, it is all a, a work of God. And Lord knows there are many people out there much smarter than you and I. And yet they're able to, they're, they're not able to open up the Bible and read it in the same way that you are because they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Even though they are just off the charts brilliant, you know, IQs in like 150, 160, uh, and they could tell us things about the Bible. We're like, oh man, I, I never knew that. But they don't have the spiritual insight to read it because God has not opened up their eyes. He has not removed the, the blindness from them. Uh, it's a an amazing truth that this is a, a spiritual reality. It's not just something that we can uh, get to by intellect or by, by reason. We have to have our eyes opened by God. It's a, a spiritual work of, on his part.